disciples of all nations. That's something not only that we think about, but we spend a lot of time working uh, towards accomplishing. Uh, and that is, is really properly, I think, the missional focus of the, of the church as a whole. Uh, last summer, <clears throat> we had a conference in Ghana, West Africa, in the city of Accra. We had about 150 men from six countries that came to that. And as we were starting the conference, uh, we introduced the theme, which was on making disciples who basically are transformed by Christ and who in turn transform the world around them. And a fellow from Ghana, a delegate from Ghana, um, from Rwanda, excuse me, stood up and introduced himself as the different people were introducing themselves. Uh, and he said he could think of no more topic uh, that was, was more important than the one we were covering. He said basically <clears throat> the country that he was from, Rwanda, was a shining example of missionary success in the 20th century. Uh, upwards of 90% of the population had become professing uh, Christians. Uh, and they were just, you know, basically held up as, as, as one of the greatest missionary successes in history. That was until 1994, he said, when uh, ethnic violence swept through the country and over 800,000 men, women, and children were massacred, uh, very often by their friends and neighbors and fellow countrymen. Uh, and he said, he said this, he said, our biggest problem <clears throat> is that we have managed to make many converts, but very few disciples. We somehow created churches where faith did not work out in our daily lives. We have to help our congregations to bridge the gap between what they believe and, and what they do. Uh, <clears throat> right after that conference, a number of the speakers and the sponsors for the conference had a chance to go down to a place called Cape Castle. Uh, it's a historic site. Uh, in Ghana, and Cape Castle for several hundred years was the main English slave trading post in West Africa. Uh, as we were touring this impressive structure, it was an old colonial tradition-looking fort. Uh, we went through the main parts of the fort, and then we got down to the underground parts of the fort, which were actually built specifically to hold slaves. And we went into these chambers, uh, and, and really, <clears throat> everybody in the group, the, 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 the immediate sensation that you get in going into these chambers is just that this is a horrible, horrible place. There was very little uh, air circulating through the chambers. There was one tiny little hole, probably about the size of a man's head, in one corner of these dark chamber, just letting in a little trickle of light. There was a little channel of water that ran down the middle of the chamber. Uh, that would carry away waste, but also provide drinking water for those being held there. Uh, and the guide said that there was uh, usually upwards of a thousand slaves being held in each of these chambers. There was two main chambers, one for women and one for men. And they were held in there for, for uh, one to two weeks at a time uh, with little or no food or water. Uh, and he said basically they were held that way specifically so that the weak um, captives would die and that only the stronger ones would be sold to the slave ships and that they would be able to make it in the, the transatlantic voyage. And he said basically it was, it was just economically driven inhumanity. As we were coming up out of these chambers, we were coming up these steps and we came out into the light kind of in this big open courtyard in the middle of the fort <clears throat> and there was a structure we noticed built right over the tops of these chambers. And one of the men with us asked the guy, he said, well, what is that? Was that where they would bring the slaves up and then you know, sell them to the, to the owners of the slave ships? He said, no, that was the chapel 
that the English built so they would have a place to worship. And that image of, of Christians or people at least who thought it was important enough to have a chapel worshiping every Sunday over, over a place where they had built so that, that it would kill the weak just, just, just hit us. That it was another example of our need to really uh, bridge that gap between uh, what we believe intellectually, what we know the scriptures to, to teach, and how we live out our lives. Um, <clears throat> if you'll turn with me, our text uh, this morning basically deals with this same sort of issue. <clears throat> it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 17 through 31. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 through 31. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. <clears throat> For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that you have uh, given us your spirit that makes your word living and active in our hearts. Uh, we pray that you would do that this morning, that you would uh, enlighten our minds and our hearts so that we might uh, know you better, that we might be more deeply impacted by your word, by your gospel. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to look at, at three things. First of all is uh, what, uh, what is the fruit of, of, of the problem um, in the church that Paul is writing to. Uh, the second thing is what is the source of that problem. Uh, and then the third thing is a solution that Paul offers to the church for their problem. And the first thing you have to remember is that this text that we're looking at this morning is written specifically for the church and for the life of the church. It's not a, um, it has applications 
to things like how do you encounter uh, another culture's worldview. It has applications in how we do evangelism and things like that. But first and foremost, the text was written to a church that had written Paul saying we're experiencing these problems. We have some issues going on. Can you please help us to deal with them? And so the letter is written first and foremost to Christians uh, and, 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 and dealing with how they live out their lives as Christians. Now, <clears throat> what was the problem at the church in Corinth? Uh, basically, uh, you could sum it up this way. It was a problem of unchanged individual and corporate lives. And there were symptoms of that or fruits of that. And these are some of the things that Paul, Paul deals with pretty directly. I'll run down a laundry list of the symptoms or fruits of their problem. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, uh, we hear about divisions and disorder, uh, largely from, from, from different groups or different factions in the church in Corinth following uh, men, different personalities rather than, than, than following after Christ. It says, For while there are jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? The other thing that Paul says that's, that's there is a lack of discernment regarding sin and its effects. 1 Corinthians 5.1, Paul is telling them, talking to them about a specific situation in which he says there is immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. And then in 1 Corinthians 5.6, he writes to them saying, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And that's in relationship to this this uh, immorality that's being practiced in the church that they, that they are they're tolerating. So they don't really have a good, good discernment related, related to sin and its effects. There's also a, gr a great deal of strife and jealousy uh, being borne out in lawsuits among the different members. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, and 8 says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong, and why not be, rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Then in chapters 8 through 10, Paul is dealing with uh, uh, issues related to pagan idolatry, and apparently there's, there's still people in the church that are uh, being tripped up or being ensnared in pagan idolatry. Uh, he says in uh, 10.14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Uh, then more, close, uh, more closer to home in terms of the church itself, there's apparently a very bad misuse of the sacraments. 1 Corinthians 11, 17, and then 20 through 22 says this, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because you, when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. When you come together it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating each one of you goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you have, don't you have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? The other thing that <clears throat> Paul is dealing with in a number of chapters, chapters 12 through 14, is uh, this, their, their selfish focus in terms of how they're using their gifts. Corinth apparently was a church that was very gifted by God's spirit, uh, but those gifts had really turned in on themselves and were not being used properly. Uh, specifically 1 Corinthians 13 is to specifically show them that they're using their gifts in a selfish way, but that God had intended them to be, be used in a loving uh, and, and a selfless love, an agape-type love. 1 Corinthians 12:7 he says, sums up his argument. He says that it, it, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit, but it's for the common good. Uh, so he's trying to get them to, to uh, 
to get beyond this use of their gifts for their own, own benefit. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, there's a long list of other sins. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul, partly in response to their questions to him, but also in response to reports that he's heard about the church, throughout this letter deals very directly with the issues of sin, which really are the, the fruits or the symptoms of an underlying problem that the church has. And he does that uh, over and again by admonishing them, uh, bringing them to, to a realization of their sin, but then he immediately brings them back to something. And that something is, is, is the solution to their problem, and that's what we'll look at a little later. First, before we go to that, uh, we'll look a little bit at the source of their problem. I really think that these, these, these lists of sins and issues in the church in Corinth are, are just the fruit. It's not the, the root issue that they're struggling with. And uh, the root issue is really brought out in the text that we're, we read this morning. Uh, Paul addresses the source of the problem, something that's creating this disconnect between their faith and their life, uh, in verse 22, and he talks about two things there. Uh, if you look at that, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. <coughs> now that, that doesn't seem uh, terribly harmful. Uh, you know, if we look at that, that the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. First, I mean, I'm sure all of us have had times in our life where we would like wisdom on some issue. Uh, or we'd like God to give us some sort of indication uh, as to, to, to you know, guide us or direct us or something like that. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, it, commentaries on uh, 1 Corinthians say that these are really uh, very harmful, uh, basic idolatries for human nature. Gordon Fee has a commentary. Let me read from that. He says, here the Jews and Greeks are... are illustrate the basic idolatries for all of humanity. The demand for power and the insistence on wisdom, always for us and from our own point of view, are still the basic idolatries of our fallen world. God must function as the all-powerful or all-wise, but always in terms of our own best interest, power on our behalf, and wisdom like our own. For both, the ultimate idolatry is that of insisting that God conform to our own prior views as to how the God who makes sense to us ought to do things. <clears throat> and when people are coming to God that way, it basically creates a people who are free to pick and choose uh, how they will respond uh, to, to, to what God is asking them to do. They can live out areas of, uh, of their faith in their lives, or they can choose to not respond to certain areas, just depending on how that fits into their their construct and their, their view of life. Uh, and the result of that is that it leaves our lives very often unchanged. Uh, we, we have a genuine faith maybe, uh, and we, we are honestly seeking God, but then there's, there are areas in our lives which you know, we've compartmentalized and set aside and said that these are areas that you know, we're just not going to let God in here, and he's not going to be uh, the Lord of that area. 
<clears throat> now, the root and foundation of both these idols, though, is the same thing. It consists in a prideful self-orientation. Uh, both of them are the same thing, but they're expressed a little bit differently outwardly. He talks about the wisdom in this passage, and later on he talks about the wisdom of, the, of this age. <clears throat> and that's kind of more of a secular-oriented belief system where uh, human beings find wholeness or significance uh, in their, in, on their own terms and for their own glory. The concept, that's the concept that he talks about with the Greeks. With the Jews, he talks about them seeking uh, signs, and that's a religious orientation. It's not a secular philosophy. It's, it's, it's a religious orientation where we use God for our own ends. Uh, and in that sense, men seek signs to make sure that God is operating according uh, to their own desires or plans. Now, central to both of those really is pride. <clears throat> and uh, I, I don't honestly think that we take pride seriously enough as a sin. For instance, if I came up here and I said, and I confessed some sin, I said, you know, on the way down here, we stopped and robbed a 7-Eleven, you'd probably be pretty shocked. Uh, there's probably a whole huge list of other sins I could have brought up that you'd be pretty shocked at. But if I came and said, you know, I want to confess to you that I'm a proud person, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't rate up there too high in terms of the, uh, the, the sin factor in our own minds. But really, in terms of Scripture, sin is really one of the, is the central pride uh, that God is dealing with. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. <clears throat> now, the other thing that's important to notice uh, when, when Paul is talking about uh, wisdom of this age and signs and powers and such, uh, he's also talking about a spiritual dimension uh, that, is, that is feeding into this human tendency. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8, he says this, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed from the, ages of our, for, from the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Paul is juxtaposing um, <clears throat> wisdom of this age and rulers of this age uh, as not just the human orientation and not just the human rulers, not just Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate, but but really a uh, demonic uh, dimension, uh, spiritual dimension that's, that's feeding into this and is behind that. Um, <clears throat> now, our own particular position, I think, is, is a bit per precarious. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his a book called The Screwtape Letters, I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a, it's a what would you call it? It's fiction, uh, but it's a commentary on the nature of, of the Christian life and, and, and things that are going on. In the screw tape letters, you have an elder demon writing to a junior demon who's been assigned to derail the life of this Christian. And the elder demon is giving him advice. And in that, uh, one, of the, one of the letters from the elder demon to the junior demon says this. He says, if once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshiping what he vaguely calls forces while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. And for Lewis, the materialist magician was, was a mixture of these two things, Greeks who sought wisdom and Jews who sought a sign. So it was kind of a, a mixture of a, of a secular and a religious uh, orientation, both 
geared towards uh, working out our lives uh, for our own purposes, and really, whether it was religious or secular, geared towards keeping us separate from God. Um, <clears throat> so the materialist magician might use God, for instance, to mitigate problems that they couldn't handle with their own resources or reason, and they would obey God enough to keep God happy and on their side, but their basic orientation, basically, uh, Lewis was saying, was towards themselves. And <clears throat> he, uh, Lewis, was inclined to say that we have, have developed far enough in, in terms of humanity to combine these two, not just have them separate. Um, I want to look a little bit, we focused on the fruit of the problem uh, and the source of the problem. We'll look at, at what Paul says is the solution to this problem. And that's found, uh, it's, it's mentioned throughout, but in, especially in verse 23 it's alluded to, where he says, Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. <clears throat> There's been a debate in history over many centuries as to whether God could have saved man through any other means. Was it possible for God to choose another means other than sending Christ to live and to die on the cross? Uh, and I think really the verses that we're looking at today address uh, that, and, and I, I think the answer is that no, there was no other way that God could have dealt with man's sin, uh, primarily because God had to deal not only with outward sin, but he had to deal with the basic idolatries of man's heart, which are rooted in pride. So the gospel had to be, or God's saving plan, had to be something that would deal not only with with erasing our sin, uh, but also uh, become something that would be diametrically opposed and break man's pride. Jonathan Edwards says this, he says, men are enemies to the cross of Christ through pride. They despise a crucified Savior, one that suffered such disgrace and humbled himself so low. Men through self-righteousness are averse to deep humiliation and renunciation of their own dignity. This has to be crucified with Christ. So in our verses, Paul talks about the fact that the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. And the reason that he was a stumbling block to the Jews was that they were looking for a Messiah who in keeping with their religious orientation was going to come and establish a kingdom and prove to the world that their view of everything was correct and sort of set them at the, at the head of all the nations. And when Jesus came <clears throat> and was crucified... Uh, that, that for them was just a complete contradiction in, in terms. You know, when he was hanging on the cross, they yelled at him, you know, uh, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and come down. That was partly to mock him, but I think it was also partly testing him to find out if he really was the Messiah or not. And when he died on the cross, for them, that meant he was not the Messiah. Uh, the cross was folly to the Greeks, Paul says, since uh, Christ crucified really didn't make any sense in terms of their philosophical systems. Uh, for one thing is how could they believe in somebody uh, who was crucified as a criminal when, when obviously he was not. Uh, that person was probably not the smartest person in the world. And so uh, for the Greeks to embrace him as sort of the, the, the ultimate version of, of, of wisdom uh, was, was for them folly. Uh, <clears throat> and what 1 Corinthians shows us is that the cross uh, was essential in dealing with both these orientations, both the, the desire for wisdom and the desire uh, for signs or for power 
uh, in a religious orientation. Uh, One preacher has said it this way. He said, the waves of human pride break against the rock of Calvary and they can go no farther. We're also told in verse 24 that God basically graciously turned aside this human pride in those he's called so that we now see Christ crucified as the power of God. And and that really is a work of of God's spirit for us to even grasp that Uh, because our our nature is to not... not, uh, is to want to establish our own righteousness. Our nature is to want to uh, please God enough just to to keep him on our side. Uh, But God, in his spirit, uh, by his grace and through his spirit, has has enabled us, has lifted the veil, as he says in Romans, from our eyes and allowed us to see what for the rest of the world is foolishness and weakness as the power of God. He says he does this for one reason, and it's in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Um, The other thing that this does is it it establishes kind of a paradoxical principle for the Christian life, uh, one in which uh, weakness and what's seen as foolishness in the eyes of the world is really a source of power. Uh, Paul has experienced this a great deal, and he writes about it both in 1 and 2 Corinthians In 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verse 3, he said that preaching had to be in weakness. I came to you in weakness so that your faith would rest on the power of God, not on the wisdom of men. He said in uh, uh, verses uh, 4, 9, and 10 that he saw that weakness also had an underlying spiritual dimension. Remember we were talking about earlier that um, the rulers of this uh, age and the wisdom of this age pointed not just to the tendencies of man, but also to an underlying spiritual reality. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, and 10, Paul talks about how uh, that is impacted by, by this paradoxical principle of weakness in the Christian life. He says, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, and we are dishonored. Now, the other thing that Paul had learned was that this principle of weakness, this paradoxical principle of weakness, uh, was something for him that made sense of another reality in his life. It made sense. It gave him a perspective in which uh, suffering made sense because he saw that uh, real human weakness, when Paul talked about the fact that he was weak, he wasn't just pretending to be weak, you know, to sound good. He was really weak. I mean, he really had lots of <laughs> problems and issues. Uh, and, I, and, and when he says he came to them in fear and trembling, he really did come to them in fear and trembling. Um, but the, the weaknesses um, that came to Paul as a result of suffering, because he understood this principle uh, this paradoxical principle that, that weakness worked out in the life of the believer as God's strength, he was able to make sense of suffering. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, he said it this way. He said, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I think one thing we have to ask ourselves uh, uh, simply is, is do we have the same problem that the church in Corinth had? Do we have uh, these tendencies uh, to, to seek either our own reasoned uh, view of the world or to use God in sort of a religious way, uh, really keeping him at arm's length, uh, but... Uh, making sure he's happy enough with us uh, so, that, so that he doesn't get mad at us? Uh, do we have those, those issues in our lives? And, and over and over again, I, I have seen throughout the world that I think that is a very basic problem of, of, of humanity in general and still of Christians. Uh, specifically in the United States, there's a, uh, <clears throat> an example of this. George Barna does uh, what he calls a state of the church uh, report every year, and in 2006, uh, this was this is taken from his summary or conclusions of his State of the Church 2006. If you don't know George Barney, he does basically uh, uh, polls, and, and he's a statistician who looks at the church and the nature of the church and the nature of culture and society and where things are going. This is what he said about the church in uh, for 2006. He says spirituality is in vogue in our society today. Today. It is popular to claim to be part of a faith community or to have a spiritual commitment. But what do Americans mean when they claim to be spiritual? Many Americans live a dual life, one filled with, feeling, with good feelings about God and faith, corroborated by some simple religious practices, and another in which they believe they are in control of their own destiny and operate quite apart from him. People do not have an accurate view of themselves when it comes to spirituality. American Christians are not as devoted to their faith as they like to believe. They have positive feelings about the importance of faith, but their faith is rarely the focal point of their life or a critical factor in their decision-making. He goes on to talk about eight of 16 moral uh, behaviors that they did surveys on, and he says, in, in, in eight of the 16 moral behaviors, the profile of people who were self-described as born-again people was virtually identical to that of non-born-again people. For example, divorce rates were virtually identical uh, 35% for born-again people and 35% for non-born-again people. And then he goes through a whole list of other things. And there were some things in which people who saw themselves as born-again evangelical believers did better in. But the, the, uh, the sad thing was that in, in about half of those things, we were virtually undifferentiable un- from the rest of the world. You know, and we often allow ourselves, I think, to live with this tension, this disjunction between what we believe and what we live because we don't realize uh, that God has provided a solution. Uh, and the solution is simply this. It's the message of the cross. Um, in verse 30, <clears throat> take a look at that. Paul talks about life uh, and the fruit of a life where the message of the cross is becoming central in the hearts and minds of people. And he says this, he says, Christ will be our source of life, our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. And when Christ is all that for us, we have nothing to boast in but the Lord himself. 
Um, so I would encourage you to take the opportunity, uh, you know, to start your day looking at the cross. Uh, uh, it really has to be something that, that permeates your heart and life. All the training and all the seminary education, everything that we're doing around the world, we, we are trying to make Christ and the gospel the central focus of all that. Because we know it's not enough just to go and see men and women make professions of faith. They have to be transformed in their daily living so that they can then in turn transform the world around them. In closing, I'd like to read uh, to you a meditation by Augustine on, on the cross just to try to help us fix our hearts on the cross a little bit. The death of the Lord, the death of the Lord our God should not be a cause of shame for us. Rather, it should be our greatest hope, our greatest glory. In taking upon himself the death that he found in us, he has most faithfully promised to give us life in him, such as we cannot have of ourselves. He loved us so much that sinless himself he suffered for us sinners the punishment we deserved for our sins. Brothers, let us then fearlessly acknowledge and even openly proclaim that Christ was crucified for us. Let us confess it, not in fear, but in joy, not in shame, but in glory. The Apostle Paul saw Christ and extolled his claim to glory. He had many great inspired things to say about Christ, but he did not say that he boasted in Christ's wonderful works, in creating the world since he was God with the Father, or in ruling the world, though he was also a man like us. Rather, he said, let me not boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. As they were looking on, so we too gaze on his wounds as he hangs. We see his blood as he dies. We see the price offered by the Redeemer. We touch the scars of his resurrection. He bows his head as if to kiss you. His heart is made open and bare as if it were in love to you. His arms are extended that he may embrace you. His whole body is displayed for your redemption. Ponder how great these things are. Let all this be rightly weighed in your mind. As he was once fixed to the cross in every part of his body for you, so may he now be fixed in every part of your soul. If you please stand, we will sing a hymn of response, hymn 